When I received an email about the new book, Experiments and Reflection, I'll say that my reflex was silly in hindsight. How much does this field need to write about reflective practice before we've said everything there is? Leticia, forgive me. I'll take you back to 2003 for a moment. These were major growth years for me. One of the first national grants that I worked on as an impassioned program manager was working to structure professional training for out of school time educators. I traveled all over the country, meeting the part-time college student, aunties, church administrators who make up what you might be surprised to find is a very large portion of the adults that many young people spend most of their day with. They are so often the most under-applauded educators in the learning ecosystem, and we struggle still to realize a professional pathway that rewards them adequately. But I digress. Among the skills and approaches we worked on in those trainings was reflective practice. I did a deep dive with my boss, whose background was community education, and became a mentor to me, sharing ideas that ultimately would root very deeply. She's the one who insisted on reflection as being core to the practice of an educator. The more I served those geographies, learning more on the job than I could ever reciprocate, of course, the more I learned about the subject, including how many people in a packed room would roll their eyes simultaneously when I suggested reflective practice. So here I am. I did it to Leticia. But flashing forward these 20 years later, I got an answer from Leticia in this interview that I think is exactly what I needed. We can't stop, is what she suggests. What I take from our conversation is reflective practice becomes more important in every moment, especially as more modes of sense-making and support evolve around us, and the stakes of delivering what learners need in any context get ever higher. Put into language that's hot right now, reflective practice might be the most durable skill that we have in any field. What I hadn't thought about that Leticia has taken on is the question of how AI might support the reflective practitioner. Leticia Britos Cabanaro is a scientist turned designer with a knack for creating transformative learning experiences. She holds a PhD in developmental biology from Stanford School of Medicine and is a former member of the Research and Education and Design Lab, Red Lab for short, from Stanford School of Ed. Leticia is also creator of an AI tool called Riff, designed to help people get better at reflection, and you can sign up to try it through the links in the show notes. This tool is part of a broader, not new question of how technologies can transform the way we teach and learn. Before we get started, I hope you'll go find the show on facebook.com slash no such thing podcast or anywhere you follow me on social media. I added a short form this year in case you want to help me program guests for the coming year. Do you have someone whose perspective you've been dying to bring to your earbuds or maybe a colleague with an incredible project that needs a bigger stage? Maybe you have a, quote, dissemination goal for an upcoming project and you'd like to connect with me about canning a recording that you can share more widely than a grant report. I hope you'll go visit me and find the post. The form will take you a few minutes tops and no ideas are bad ones. While you're at it, your love and support in a review or a five-star rating wherever you download the show means the world. Enjoy the conversation. So I'm Leticia Britos-Cabanero. I work and teach at the Stanford D School. 
and I'm the author of the book Experiments in Reflection. And you're listening to No Such Thing with Mark Lesser. Leticia, uh, I have so many questions based on the the homework that I've been doing about mm-hmm. your journey into this role that you have now, which is um, so cool. And I just wanted you to sort of chart the journey for us a little bit from lab scientist to what you're up to now. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, I have to say that uh, it's ha- it has been a, quite an, uh, an interesting path when I reflect back uh, at my journey. Uh, but I, w- I had the, the great fortune and, and privilege to uh, come to Stanford uh, to do my PhD in the um, Department of Developmental Biology. Um, and um, I loved my experience there. And sometime along the way, I, uh, it was in my, my second year uh, as a grad student, um, there was one day when I got into the elevator in my, my building uh, where my lab was, um, and I saw a colorful flyer that said, Adventures in Design Thinking, uh, a week workshop for um, students, graduate students of all disciplines. And I really had no idea what design thinking was about, uh, but it was a moment in, in my um, uh, experiments where my experiments were, were not really working, right? And I was kind of like a little bit down and kind of like, what am I doing here? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and do that. It sounds like a fun thing to do. And so I signed up. Um, and this was many months later, uh, but I got accepted. When the time came to attend this uh, one-week workshop, which was very intensive, like nine to five every day, um, I, I really thought I was going to get in trouble with my advisor. And I said, like, there's no way she's going to be, you know, uh, uh, happy with me, you know, not, not being in the lab for the whole week. But, you know, I had given my word and I stepped into the disco when it was a double white trailer it was, you know, being one of the many iterations uh, of spaces that the D-School has had. And when I stepped in into that double white trailer, uh, I just knew that that was my place um, because I got to work with um, other students from history and engineering and computer science. And it was just fantastic to have this, um, this opportunity uh, to also tackle uh, creative challenges and open-ended questions, and and it was so fantastic that I just said like you know this is this is what I want to do, and um, also drawing on a previous experience that I had had before my PhD uh, of working in um, teacher training and and and, and education with K twelve teachers, mm. um, I started collaborating with the D school and specifically with the K twelve lab in uh, exploring how design could be used by teachers to actually become better at their practice, but also as a, something that they would incorporate in what, in what they were teaching their students uh, to uh, develop, help them develop uh, useful skills, right? Like, you know, how do you really understand others and develop empathy for others? How do you um, activate and keep alive your creativity, which is something that is really, I think, is really important. So that that started my 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 journey at the D School, uh, and it has had many different, um, you know, uh, I have had many different roles at the D School. Uh, up to what what where I'm now, which is I'm I co-direct one of the programs that works with university students, and also with university educators, 
um, and and also I teach in the masters uh, in design impact. We share in common some work uh, with young people. Uh, I know that you founded a program with uh, or co-founded a program with that was supported by the National Science Foundation related to engineering pathways, and um, we share in common. Um, that context where uh, there was a time in uh, New York when one of the programs that I had the huge pleasure of helping to co-found and grow was teaching young people who were on an engineering track um, the design the design process and yeah. uh, human yeah. centered design from start to finish and that program um, still exists. It's a design league in, in New York. It actually, uh, has, has grown a lot and super fun, but I can see, I mentioned that because I can see how one thing leads to the other. And it's super interesting to me, you know, this, the professional journey for you, um, makes a lot of sense to me, but I think a lot of people would, would, you know, sort of scratch their head and wonder how, developmental biology becomes a doorway to um, innovations in in uh, in how we teach and learn which is is yeah. more of the space that you're in now can you just describe yeah. for me uh, so like me I'm sure a lot of people lay people don't know what developmental biology exactly is mm-hmm. what yeah. kind of <laughs> describe experiments that you were doing when you first took mm-hmm. that um, that design thinking session. Yeah, yeah. So the experiments that I was doing in the biology lab had to do with understanding how um, a cell senses the environment and um, activates um, its division or not, right? Like, so in this case, I was studying a bacterium uh, called Colobacter crescentus. It's like um, lives in water. Uh, and it's a, a system that is being used to understand, um, you know, cell division and how it's regulated. So it, it was uh, very kind of like zooming in into very specific aspects of biology, right? Mm. But you could, you know, the applied, uh, the applications of, of that knowledge, right, that is, you know, built uh, it, uh, among many researchers and many labs, for instance, is antibiotics, right? Like how do you regulate the growth and division of bacteria, mm. but also, uh, you know, if we look at other uh, organisms and other models, like, you know, uh, our human cells and animal cells, how do you understand cancers, right? Like, which are like a deregulation of division, right? Like, so that that was my, roughly uh, my area of, of exploration and, and inquiry. Uh, but, you know, mention, uh, going back to what you said earlier, I have to say that, like, I kind of like skipped through a very important moment for me that um, preceded my doing uh, my, my PhD that led to um, coming to the field of education and realizing that that was uh, where I wanted to um, deploy my uh, experimental mindset and my 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 um, my skills as, as a scientist. And it was, you know, I had just finished um, my master's in cellular and molecular biology. This is back in my home country in Uruguay, South America. Um, and uh, I took a job uh, in a, at a teacher's training institute um, teaching uh, pre-service future science teachers, K-12 science teachers. 
And um, I took the job thinking, like, this is something that I'm just going to do on the side as I continue uh, my, my research in the lab um, in, in experimental biology. Um, and, you know, I had to teach, uh, you know, basic metabolism to these uh, future teachers. And I, so I did, you know, exactly what my teachers had done when I was a student at the university, right? Like I dusted the textbook, I prepared the transparencies, I kind of like put the, the materials up, up on the screen. And I said, you know, like I started like with great passion explaining to them, you know, what, how the metabolism was so fascinating and mm. look at all of these reactions. And when I look back at them, they were completely kind of like not excited <laughs> to say the least, right? Like, and I just really could not understand. It's like, what's going on here? I don't think I'm, you know, a, a worse lecturer than my teachers mm. were. And um, when I was in their situation, I was excited. I learned, I, you know, I was on board. I was motivated and my students are not, what's going on? Um, and after a while, I uh, had a realization that I think for me changed everything. I realized that I had learned, uh, right, as a freshman in, in, in the university, not because of how I had been taught, but in spite of how I had mm. been taught, right? I was one probably of a few group of students that had gone through, you know, <laughs> many lectures, right, and, and left with my enthusiasm and my interest intact, but many others probably had not, that had not happened for many others. So I started uh, realizing when I was now in the position of the teacher, that's not a standard that I want to aspire to, mm -hmm. right? I don't want some students to learn in spite of my bad teaching. I want all of my students to be, you know, uh, excited about what I'm, what I'm teaching them or find something that they're excited about learning, right? Um, and, and I started at that point doing experiments in learning, Right. So the same way that I was applying uh, the, uh, my, my skills as, as, a, as a scientist to doing my biology experiments, I started experimenting and, and, and crafting my hypotheses. And like, hmm, I wonder uh, what, how, what would it take to get students to understand, you know, let's say, why life is based on carbon and not silicon, which is, by the way, kind of like, at the beginning of the chapter of the, you know, textbook of, you know, uh, organic chemistry, right? Mm. Like, so I said, like, hmm, let me try something. And so, for instance, one of the experiments I, I ran early on uh, was to ask the students before we even got into a topic, I said, like, here's your assignment. It's kind of like a pre-assignment leading into, into um, what we're going to explore next. You have to write a love letter between a fictional character that you will create um, that is is made out of, of silicon to one made out of carbon. And, you know, they looked at me and said, okay, this, the, this woman is like, you know, deranged, like what's going on here? It's like, you know, I said like, figure it out. And sure enough, they had to go to a textbook and start like, like silicon carbon, what's, what's going on here? And they, they started this, this uh, discovering some of the, the elements of both elements mm. that made them made carbon like suitable for creating complex structure, chemical structures that were not as stable. So therefore they could like rearrange and, and evolve. Right. And, and the results were 
like delightful, but also it just like sparked their motivation, right? They, they were curious. They were kind of like proud of that they, what they had done and like ready to discuss. And, and like that, I did many experiments in, in that, um, in that uh, situation that like led me to kind of like really have a belief that we need educators to be experimenters and that we need to really think about like, how does learning really happen and, and how can we support it? Mm. Can you describe why I think a lot of educators would have looked at the experiment you just described and pointed to the project, and I'm using air quotes, as mm-hmm. if if I'm going to create a new paradigm for instruction, I'm going to focus on project. Clearly, this project had a huge impact on my students, but you, you began to move and it's not to say that it's your current practice is not project oriented. Um, but reflection became more of a focus. Can you describe why that was? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was really like a firsthand combination of that experience that I had first as a learner, then as a teacher um, and then also a lot of reading, right? Like, and there's, of course, a long list of scholars and pedagogical thinkers and practitioners who have written about the importance of reflection, uh, like uh, Dewey, uh, Schoen, Freire, um, like some contemporary ones like Jenny Moon from Exeter, and too many to name, right? Um, and, um, and really, and kind of like also looking at what we know about the the uh, neuroscience and kind of like the biological basis of how we learn. Uh, for instance, James Zool has done a great job of, of kind of like uh, showcasing that and, and really seeing that what happens in our brain as we kind of like take in information from the environment, as we act, as we, you know, conceptualize ideas um, has to do with making connections and that allowing for that um that element of reflection is key, right? Like, so we cannot, uh, one one situation of like what, you know, uh, James Zool would call imbalanced learning is when we have like, we're doing, 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 and we are not really pausing, if you will, to make connections, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so um, I think that that's in, in, in the words of, of my colleague, Sarah Stein Greenberg, um, action and reflection and are the, peanut butter and jelly, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they don't make sense without one another, right? Like, so I think that when we think about how we learn uh, through doing, like reflection is like what, what, what crystallizes the learning. Mm. So let's quickly jump into Riff. Uh, yeah. Because... I'm super interested in how you're recently doing some experimentation with AI related to yeah. reflection. So describe Riff and how, how did this project come about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Riff is a reflection assistant I created that is powered by generative AI um, and that helps learners make sense of their experiences by asking them questions, follow-up questions, and having a conversation, right? 
um, in a way you could think about it as a conversation that you might have with a peer, you know, when a teacher, for instance, after an activity might say like, well, pair and share what happened here, have a conversation or a conversation that you might like you might have with yourself, if you will. Right. Um, so RIF, uh, so it's a tool that the teacher uh, can deploy as part of a learning experiences experience. The teacher can customize where, what is the starting point? What is the initial question that Riff will ask the learner and direct the attention, for instance, to a specific uh, part of, of an activity that was done? Uh, and then the large language model engine um, uh, dynamically generates the dialogue with the learner in response of what the learner uh, responds, right? And these reflective conversations that the students have with Riff are visible to the teacher. And this is, of course, known to the learner. So if you will, you could think about this as the um, a, a version of a reflective paper that a, a student would submit. But in this case, they're just having a conversation. Um, and by seeing uh, these conversations, these reflective conversations, the teacher sort of can, can see the thinking of the student mm. and can make sense of like, hmm, what, what resonated? What, what came up for the the different particular learners. And also uh, the RIF allows to generate, to summarize and find themes across the reflections of, of all students in a group, let's say, mm. and for the teacher to bring back those themes, those insights back to the students, right? Um, so I think it's like a really powerful tool and a very specific way to kind of like use generative AI to really augment uh, learning. So um, describe for me a practical use case. Maybe it's yeah. one that's actually happened in the platform or maybe it's one that you've experimented with. Yeah, so actually um, last week I convened a group of um, early users of this tool, all educators, and I asked uh, one of them to share uh, his experience uh, using Riff so that we uh, could all learn uh, together. Uh, I think that's something that is important, uh, especially with these new technologies. Um, so um, this is so I'm, I'm going to describe uh, the experience of uh, my colleague Hesam Panahi uh, from Rice, uh, and he teaches um, entrepreneurship and design. And he had uh, recently a group of students who did um, uh, a trip to Amsterdam. This is a learning trip. So a group of students uh, did a summer abroad. Uh, program and so um, he and he was there with them and so they had to collaborate with uh, Dutch students um, they had a, a, a series of activities and uh, he had them reflect with Riff four times in the period that they were in this trip um, so after each significant um, or some significant moments in the trip like for instance like working with a new group of of peers from another university um, in, and then, you know, had saw that like some of the things that came up for the students. Uh, and so it was, it was able, to, he was able to visualize that, but also kind of like bring back, as, as I mentioned to the students, um, uh, some of the, some of the insights, for instance, like what happens when you are generating new ideas in a team and, and like what the head, sometimes we hesitate to, to share an idea, right? Like, because we think, you know, it's kind of like, we're going to be judged, right? Mm. Like, and so kind of like the, the conversations really brought up um, some of these behaviors 
uh, and made them uh, visible for uh, Hesam as a teacher, but also for the students, right? Like through their conversations uh, with Riff. Uh, so that's that's uh, uh, one example. Um, I can also tell you about my experience, which you know uh, led uh, in using Riff and developing uh, the different the, the the tool over time. Um, I think that one important uh, use of it is to allow for internal individual processing and thinking uh, before we do a group debrief, mm -hmm. right? Like, so let's say we do an activity in class, right? What often happens is that if we and um, you know bring the group together, so like, let's let's debrief this activity. What happened, right? You're always going to have um, you know a few uh, external processors and extroverts that are going to jump in and kind of like you know uh, contribute something and there are other students who for different reasons maybe introversion maybe because they need more time to process uh, they're not going to participate right so allowing for this for like let's say five minutes of a conversation in a way it's kind of like a, a um uh aided conversation with themselves right like prompted by by the questions that we've asked brings back things that then they can bring to the whole group right mm. um so um that's one one way of of using riff or it could be in between sessions right like after a session and then uh students do it on their own and then the teacher can bring that back to to the group you know in an email or or in the next class um, and so I think it really gives everyone a, a voice, right? Um, that's that's one 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 way of of, mm. of using it. I'm thinking about my own processing. Mm. In the course of a day, I might have anywhere from four to six, you know, hours of meetings. And mm. tell me if this describes what you're saying yeah. in a way or would be a use of what you're describing if rather than the way that I do it now which is you know I I take notes in a notebook based on the things that I'm hearing and are are coming back and forth but it's always a partial picture at the end of a meeting you know I have a bunch of scribbling um if my process instead was a tool on my desktop where that's giving me a series of prompts that makes my reflection about the last hour smarter. Mm -hmm. It had potentially one hypothesis would be that it consolidates the amount of time I spend trying to recapture the thinking that was happening during it, but also it yeah. sort of catapults me into the meaning making more quickly because I suddenly have this, you know, I have like my, uh, my partner on the side who is pushing yeah. me to understanding more quickly. Is, is that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you have, uh, you know, invented another, uh, use case for, for Riff, uh, that is the, yeah, it's like, you could have it like, say, you know, as you said, like, you know, after, each meeting, it could be even integrated into into a uh, you know a, a, a tool like you know Zoom or Microsoft Teams mm. or, or any of those other uh, tools of kind of like having that conversation, right? Which is a little bit different. I want to point out that uh, to what um, we're seeing, for instance, in assistants that join meetings. I don't know if you have had the experience of joining yes. a call and there's you know 
sometimes one, two, three assistants, right? Um, I, I joke that uh, there's going to be a time when the, the, the assistants are going to meet and then they're going to tell us what, what we should do next, right? Because what happens is that the assistants basically are, are like recording the conversation, the transcript, and then using generative AI to do kind of like a, a summary, right? Um, and some of them even like assign action items at the end, which mm. is really interesting, right? Like, so in that case, we're sort of like, you know, delegating the thinking to the AIs, right? Like, and there's no much, not, not a lot of thinking there. It's kind of like summarizing and, and oftentimes imperfectly what was said, right? What you're suggesting and the value that it brings is really in augmenting your thinking and training you right. to um, ask better questions and ask yourself questions, which is something that I think we should do more of, right? Like, and really kind of like, okay, what happened here? And go in different directions, right? Like going to kind of like, um, what did I, and this is, um, uh, I can then go into kind of like some of the, uh, or the dimensions of reflection that I cover in, in the book, Experiments in Reflection of like noticing. What did you notice, right? Like what happened? Like what like and maybe you notice like certain words that were said in the interaction or or maybe it's like the body language of the other person or or the silences right or um you know the choice of yeah like uh, any any element of of the communication and kind of like really be more specific in the noticing and expanding what you're noticing and your attention uh but also in kind of like as you said in making meaning and interpreting right like hmm I wonder if this means this, but also it could mean this, right? Like, and kind of like making multiple interpretations um, that can get you to consider, you know, other perspectives and not just like, mm. you know, okay, this is like being at a, at a very literal, right? well, they said that they didn't want to do this. It was like, well, but let's explore that. What's, why? Why might this be the case? And that might allow you to kind of like find other solutions. For instance, if it's like a, a conflict, right? Like find a way around it. If you really understand what motivates the other person, if this is a conversation with another human, uh, but also, you know, project yourself into the future. It's like, well, what does this mean mm. for, you know, what, what I'm thinking next or what, what could happen next or what are many possible futures uh, from this point on, right? Like, so I think really having a tool that, in, that you engage with as a partner um, you know, in, in thought and that then, you know, kind of like trains, uh, helps you um, uh, develop uh, metacognitive skills that are going to be valuable in the absence of using that tool, mm. right? There's a paper from 1991, um, I can uh, retrieve it if, if it's of interest, but like uh, that distinguishes the effects uh, of technology and the, defect, the effects with technology. So if we're thinking about, for instance, uh, generative AI, what are the, so the effects of using a tool when you're using the tool, like that transforming the outcome, versus the effects of using the tool even in the absence of using the tool, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so what are the, the uh, cognitive residues, or if you will, or the skills that you learn, right, that are applicable more broadly because you, you're using the tool? And that's what I'm uh, going with, Ray, for that, th those are the um, that's the the aspiration. Mm. There are a group of listeners who are going to ask why why couldn't I just do that with ChatGPT? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's absolutely. what's the technical difference uh, between Riff yeah. and large language models? Yeah. 
and the, the yeah. products that are coming out in the last year? Yeah. So Riff is powered by large language models. Um, and uh, ChatGPT, if we compare the, those two, two, two tools that are powered by the same technology uh, of generative AI and specifically large language models, ChatGPT is like a um, Swiss army knife, right? It can do a lot of different things. It doesn't do any particularly well, or you can, you just have to kind of like be very kind of like subtle of how you use it. Let's say kind of like the mini scissors of the Swiss army knife, right? You really have to kind of like, you know, put a lot of effort to really cut well. Riff is uh, like, if we're thinking about cutting, it's kind of like very robust scissor, mm. right? Like it does one thing and and does it better, right? Like, so let's say if you want to, to use ChatGPT as a thought partner, right? Uh, first, you have to figure out how to give it the right instructions at the at the outset, right? Um, so kind of like give it you know, a, a, a role or kind of like a point of view, a set of instructions of what should and should not do. Um, but then it's going to probably not stay on task of doing that, right? Yeah. Like it's it's very easy that it will go off task. And for instance, if you say like, oh, well, now I want you to kind of like give, you know, give me information about you know, this is historical event and it will go ahead and do that, right? Riff is very, because of, of how we have designed it and the architecture is very focused on its mission. It's like single-minded, I'm going to be a reflective partner for you and I'm going to ask you questions uh, and uh, that, you know, build on what you're saying, right? Like, and it will stay there. So if you're asking now for information, it will say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not kind of like set out to do that. Let's go back to your reflection, right? And ask you questions and really stay on task. And I think that that's really important uh, for teachers, right? Like, because you don't want a tool that really then becomes, can become anything uh, for the student and really get it, get get the, the learner derailed, right? Like, so it's about the specificity of the task. Um, and then, of course, there's other layers that I think that we need to, to consider, especially in in ed tech, which has to do which has to do with, you know, the the data privacy and and the moderation, right? And I think like um, to be honest, like tools like ChatGPT, like it has a, mo a moderation uh, filter, but there's other things in which I think like there's not a lot of consideration, like you know, uh, privacy or, or jailbreaking, mm -hmm. and and we really need, and and how the data is used, and we're not even like, you know, questioning that, right? Like, right. so for, for us uh, in developing Riff has been very important to be transparent about that, transparent about how the data is going to be used, what are the protections and guardrails we're putting yeah. uh, for the tool. And that is a tool with the teacher in the loop, right? Like that is part of, of uh, a pedagogical process that the teacher is, is uh, designing, right? Like then if we're talking about adults, right? Like you could think about like, yes, you can have, you know, your use case of kind of like, okay, I'm going to have this, you know, um, riff as my like thought partner at the end of each meeting or like it helped me kind of like process hmm. throughout the day. Right. Um, but yes, in this case, uh, I think it's really important when we're talking about uh, young learners uh, that, that, that the teacher um, is part of, of, of the loop as well. Yeah. Is before we talk a little bit about the book, um, what's the future for Riff? Is this, is yeah. it an experiment in and mm -hmm. of itself? 
Um, or do you feel like it's a solution to a very specific problem you've already identified? Yes. The answer is yes. So both, <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, yes, it's definitely uh, an experiment. And, and, and I think the value there uh, is, you know, several fold, right? Like one is I think we need um, uh, practitioners such as myself to experiment with designing tools, especially with these new technologies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that we can have, we can di direct where these tools go, right? Yeah. And participate in the conversation in an informed way, right? So it's not just about like, well, we have, you know, developers over there that are developing tools and we're using them, but like, what, like, how can I participate in the conversation and bring other educators to participate in the conversation of, of how are developing our uh, uh, how are we developing tools that our students are using, right? Like what are, what is the pedagogy uh, that is behind the use of these tools and that, that informs the, the design early on. So I think that's important um, that we participate in this, this early on. Um, I think that also, um, uh, as, as, as I was mentioning, for me, it was important to not say, well, um, some of the conversations that I was um, seeing early on when specifically, of course, like large language models and transformers and, and the, the underlying technology has been available for a while, but, you know, starting last November, so like a little bit more than a year, there has been, uh, ChatGPT created this wide availability of, of a tool that uses this technology. And a lot of the conversation was like, we should ban ChatGPT or mm. we should like, use ChatGPT for everything, right? Like, or, and, and little in between. And for me, what was interesting is like, well, let's, this ChatGPT is a tool. Let's figure out what we can do with the underlying technologies that is more targeted more specific and that addresses a specific need and a specific opportunity. Um, and, and there are other possibilities, right? Like, so this is, this RIP is just a tool, right? Uh, as ChatGPT is. Uh, but for instance, just to mention some of the additional experiments that we are doing uh, at the DISCO that I'm, I'm participating and collaborating in uh, with um, uh, other colleagues, uh, we uh, recently also developed a tool um, that uses uh, generative AI like Riff, like ChatGPT, um, and uh, but has also a combination of, 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 of uh, scripted um, conversational interaction to help practitioners scope projects mm. incorporating human-centered design and systems thinking. Mm. And it's really a very powerful tool. Basically, it, it asks you at the beginning a series of, of specific questions that have to do with, you know, who are the stakeholders involved in, in your project, right? Like, what is the kind of, of impact that you want to see uh, where? And like a, a series of, of variables, if you will, right? And building on the know-how that we have developed at the D school through coaching uh, individuals and teams in doing this scoping project, mm. right? Like scoping their projects and rescoping their and reframing their projects, we have uh, input that into the tool so the tool can guide you through doing that reframing yourself, right? Like, and that uh, really helps with the fact that we can't, you know, we cannot. Uh, the 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 availability of of us and, and the coaches that we train is limited, right? But a, a 
a tool can scale, right? Like so, and and we're seeing that the actually the the performance is really great when we compare it with like a human coach, which uh, it can combine, it can be augmenting the the work with a human coach, but also it can like frankly, you know, um, uh, provide that value to many folks that do not have the access to working with a coach that has a specific training, yeah. right? Um, so that's one example. Another example, for instance, I've done a lot of, um, I've created uh, prototypes of um, a bot that helps you in the process of ideation, right? Um, in, in actually like creating human uh, AI teams that generate ideas together, mm. right? And having, in that case, uh, the use of the AI um, is to circumvent certain like um, uh, um, places where humans get stuck generating ideas. It might be a kind of like at the very beginning, kind of like starting with a blank page. We all know that that can be sometimes kind of like, you know, uh, uh, intimidating or the fear of being judged right, yeah. by others. Right. And so you can have the AI be the sort of like the uh, uh, <laughs> the agent that is providing, you know, bad, good, ugly ideas, whatever it is. And they don't have emotions. And so they don't have mm. a problem with being judged. Right. Like, but the humans are the ones who are adding the context or saying like this idea is interesting and this makes me think of this and let's combine these two. But you are starting from a set of ideas. And that, again, is not that you are outsourcing the idea generation to the AI. We are using it to kind of help us in those places where we normally get stuck. And that brings to light those moments mm. and those hurdles, right? Like, so that we can also work on getting better because it's not just like, well, you know, it's, I will never share my ideas because I will be judged, but saying like, hmm, should I, you know, maybe it's okay to share ideas in progress if we kind of like set the, the conditions and, and the understanding in the team that it's like, you know what, like right now we're just like sharing ideas and we're not judging them and evaluating them because it's too early, right? Like, yeah. so let's, kind of like generate possibilities, right? Yeah. So we can use AI in a very specific way to um, help and to uh, help humans be, get better at certain skills. Yeah. AI also becomes in that environment a, an interesting model in the sense, not technical yeah. model, but but model in the sense of um, the AI might suggest something that feels to the human as being maybe taboo or risky or, you know, and instead, you know, what the human sees is a reaction from colleagues and peers that is positive and, and suddenly they have a positive model where it's like, oh, okay, maybe I can, maybe those yeah. are, those areas are inbounds for ideation. And that's exactly. a, that's a wonderful place to be. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to miss the moment to come back to one of the things I love about the work that you're doing right now, which is that your pursuit of understanding the importance of practice in reflection um, comes with these experiments in new technology and some support from uh, old technology. And the book is a great example where yeah. I actually, you know, all all of the series from D School and its um, and its scholars 
have impressed me in different ways. But one of the things that runs through all of them is that they are beautiful books um, to yeah. to work with. Not, um, you know, it, it's like if you took the aesthetic everybody loves from like a really charming coffee table book and yeah. you put it into a, a workbook sort of textbook, you know, content, um, it has all this great practical information, but they're beautiful. The graphics are beautiful. The The design is just like something you want to touch and feel. It's, it's fantastic. So um, the book um, came, you recently released the book and, and tell me just about the audience that you're hoping the book reaches. Yeah, yeah. And as you mentioned, the, this book is part of a series of 10 guides, right? That is a concerted effort to explore at the D School uh, other ways to extend our impact and our reach beyond the, you know, frankly, small group of Stanford students or relatively small uh, group of Stanford students uh, who can make it to a D School class, right? Or those professional learners who can come to some of our offerings, right? Like, so like for me, uh, the books um, and and mine in particular are are a way to kind of like evoke the feeling of being in a D-school class Mm. and in in the building and in the experience, right? Like, so as you said, it's like, you know, how, uh, and I think like books in general are are such a, a beautiful artifact, right? Like, and something that I really appreciated about having the opportunity to write this book um, and I think you mentioned this at the very beginning uh, of our conversation, um, is that writing is uh, an opportunity to reflect, right? Like, so the book is a reflection. It's an opportunity. It was an opportunity for me to synthesize uh, many years of work, many years of creating learning experiences, many years of figuring out, like, you know, how to um, delight students, how to kind of, like, get them um, excited about something, how to empower them and, and, and ignite their creativity, right? Like, so um, the what I really appreciated, uh, especially from uh, those, uh, my colleagues, Scott Dorley, Charlotte Burgess Auburn, Sarah Stein Greenberg, who had the vision of the series is that each book was not a book to be written. It was a book to be designed at many different layers, right? Like, so it was not just like, I'm just going to write a book. It's like, I'm going to design, you know, what the the personality of the book. I'm going to design, you know, what artists do I want to work with that Mm. is going to bring to life the the book at many different layers, not just through the words. So, for instance, for me, as I was exploring um, the the, who could be uh, an illustrator for the book, I had this thought, this a um, guiding concept of reflection as scratching the surface of, of reality to this to unveil the power of possibility of the magic mm. of possibility right and that in in and I found and so I I was looking at people uh, artists working with uh, collage and mixed media and kind of like old um, vintage photos in in color illustration. And I, I was very lucky to, fa- to find a, um, a, a young uh, artist, uh, Gabriela Sanchez, from Uruguay, from my home country, mm. who, who does just that, right? Like, so it was fantastic to work with her in partnership and say, like, oh, great, this is 
this is um, you know the the draft of the book so far and like have her um, uh, translate in art some of the concepts in the book and in in beautifully illustrated so um, I think that the you know, trying to kind of like communicate through those multiple layers, right? Mm. Like not just the words, but but the art, but also the structure, right? Like so, for me, what was important as well is like the the book is a collection of experiments. Is ha- basically has twelve experiments. Four experiments have to do, uh, and uh, each you know four group of uh, of experiments has to do with one of the layers of um, of my definition of reflection. Um, and so I really wanted uh, that, and that structure for me represents or embodies or bookifies, if you will, the pedagogy that I uh, ascribe to and that I practice, right? That is putting the experience of the learner at the center. So it was not reading about reflection or reading about what someone said about reflection, but it, it was uh, guiding um, the, the reader in practicing reflection, right? And in doing so, getting better at it, right? Because that's one thing that as a teacher, I, I discovered early on and I did uh, uh, many experiments in the classroom to, to look at this, uh, was that not only we need to create opportunities and moments for students to reflect, but we need to give them guidance and, and, and feedback about how to do it better, right? I think that's the same with other skills that sometimes we, you know, kind of like just like, you know, don't like working in teams. We just say like the four of you, you're a team, go at it, right? Like, but what Mm. does it mean to be a team? How do you work together? In the same way, what does it mean to reflect well, right? Like when is reflection productive, right? And I discovered uh, that, you know, giving students guidance, giving them a rubric, giving them an understanding of different dimensions of reflection really, um, you know, had incredible outcomes in the kinds of insights that they were arriving at, right? I love about the book all of the all of the intersectionality that you just described the intersection of disciplines so the fact that there's language and sort of approaches from your lab science background the idea that these are experiments in reflection is just such a great way of putting that together um I love the what you described as the the um cross between what the art is depicting in the book and what the content of the book, uh, the, the text of the book is describing. There's so many things I really enjoy about it. And I hope that everybody gets a chance um, to check it out. Experiments and Reflection, you can go to uh, the D School website, which I will have in the show notes, and it'll have all of the um, series of books. But this has been such a fun conversation for me. And I want to end on one question that I've been dying to ask you, Leticia. So um, reflection is such a specifically human trait, right? The, The ability to think about our thinking is in so many ways what separates humans from other um, animal ancestors. 
And so my question is, I was so excited in the book to see scholars who I've studied over time, like Donald Schoen and some some that you mentioned in our conversation today. Um, but then there's like, it goes all like uh, Stoic philosophers are talking about reflection. Um, my question for you is, why do you think it's been so challenging for us to get great as reflective practitioners? Like, why do you think we still have this need to come back to this fundamentally very human, um, Mm -hmm. trait and one that has been proven over and over to have extremely robust value if you are a person producing anything, ideas, learning, mm-hmm. whatever it is. How do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. It, that's so interesting, right? And I think there's a lot of things that we do as humans that become automatic and unconscious, uh, which is very helpful to make it through the day, right? Like mm-hmm. if we think about like an extreme is like think about breathing, right? If we had to consciously think about breathing, it would be impossible to do anything else, right? So that very uh, conveniently is an automated function for Mm. for us, right? Uh, But then there are other things that we sort of like tend to automate in a way that maybe gets in the way of really unleashing our full potential, right? Like, so um, for instance, like in thinking, like even in thinking, we might come into an autopilot in which we are not asking ourselves questions or we're Mm. just like moving from thing, doing, 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 and really not thinking. Are we thinking? Yes, we are. But what are we thinking about? How are we thinking? You know, uh, and there's so much um, nuance, right, that to be explored that, of course, as you mentioned, right, like, you know, if we take any of like even thinking, reflection, loving, like all of these very human uh, activities that define us, right, um, we can go back way back and there is you know many scholars who have studied and have different uh, definitions um and and i think that actually that's that's valuable right and and, and that's kind of like a challenge and an opportunity that i saw when i started writing the book the the first thing is like well I, obviously i need to define reflection right mm. and then it's like well but there's so many people who have actually defined it in so many ways right like it would have taken me you know many times over the length of the book just to mention the different mm-hmm. definitions of reflection. So I went the opposite direction. It's kind of like, I'm just going to come with one that is like for the purpose of the book and these readers. And like, I want you to kind of like th- this definition help you really practice and dive into an aspect of reflection that I think is is like people gloss it over for the reasons that you mentioned. It's like, yeah, of course we reflect, right? Mm. Or you know, um, or uh, or if I tell you, like, pay attention, right? What you think is kind of like, well, yeah, oh, that means kind of like, fix my eyes on whatever you're directing me to pay attention. Well, no, right? Like, so is, are the all of these kind of like words that are in the words of Marvin Minsky, Minsky, uh, suitcase words, right? Mm. That. I say reflection, you say reflection, you must say, yeah, right? We're talking about the same thing, right? Like, no, let's unpack it. And I think in that unpack it is when like, is this process of inquiry that is fantastic because it's never ending, right? Like there's going to be, you know, hopefully people still you know, talking about what reflection is and the power like many, many years from now, right? Mm. 
Um, and I think that's, that's wonderful. That's kind of like this continuous sense of inquiry, which is, I think, what makes us human as well, right? Like that, um, and, and, and I think in education, for instance, uh, we should be very careful in the language that we use. And sometimes we say, well, reflection is this. It's like, it's as opposed to saying, well, you can see reflection as this, right? So the language that we use really um, has an effect on how students perceive what we teach them, right? So if we use absolute language and they don't understand, it's like, well, you can see reflection this way, but like, how do you see it? What is the power that it has on you? So like, you can have a different perspective. It's not one way, a monolithic way of defining something that makes that thing, right? Um, so I think that's a, a fascinating area of like, debating on those things is like what intelligence right right now that we have artificial intelligence what does it mean to be intelligent yeah. are the chat gpt is it is is it intelligent or not right like and i think that's kind of like coming up with a, a consensus is not the interesting part continuing to having these debates and these different perspectives is like well if i take intelligence as this what does this allow me to do right Versus if I see it as this other thing, right? Yeah. For those practitioners, especially who are thinking, wow, all of these scholars and big ideas and big terms are a lot. And maybe this book is going to be too wonky. Um, I would say you are, comp I can't encourage you enough to get your hands on the book because it is literally so practical that there's almost no extra. And one of my favorite scholars that you call up in the course of the book is Albus Dumbledore, who obviously, um, the great reflective practitioner. I'll make people buy the book and go find out why he's in the book. But um, Leticia, this has been so fun for me. And I think people are going to get a lot from our conversation. And I hope they'll all um, check out the book and... Uh, Give us some feedback, you know, go find Riff. Obviously, you have to um, uh, sign up and sort of apply for an instance of Riff in its current instantiation, but do that. And uh, I hope that people will follow your progress because uh, it's so important. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for the kind words. And yes, uh, feedback. I love it. So any feedback is much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.